tremendous day for us as we kept the Passover a couple of nights ago. And now we are keeping the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Leviticus chapter 23, we find in verse 1, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them the Feast of the Lord that you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, these are my feasts. So that's what we're doing today. We are keeping God's feasts. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. So we also keep the, the weekly Sabbath. And verse 4, these are the feasts of the Lord, holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at their appointed times, On the fourteenth day of the first month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. And on the fifteenth day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. So this is that day. This is the fifteenth day of the first month according to God's calendar. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. That's today. You shall do no customary work on it. But you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord for seven days. The seventh day shall be a holy convocation as well. You shall do no customary work on it. So we are keeping the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And it's exciting to be here together again on God's high day. A couple of nights ago... We were reading in the book of John toward the end of the Passover service. And the very last thing he said to his disciples before he was arrested was in verse 26 of chapter 17 of the book of John. And I'll just read it. You will remember it. He said, I have declared to them your name and will declare it that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. The last words before he was arrested. I'm going to take that as a launching point today because that's what these days are about. We aren't just observing an, an old ritual that is going through the motions and we're just doing it every year because we're told to. Yes, we do it because we're commanded. But there's so much to it. And ultimately, where are we going? Christ living in us. And that's symbolized by the fact that we are eating unleavened bread, just as we did last night at the night to be observed, as was mentioned. And again, hope all of you had a had a wonderful and meaningful night to be observed. We did. And now we are keeping the feast and we are beginning these seven days of eating on unleavened bread. Now, brethren, what can get in the way of Christ living his life in us? What could prevent us, prevent him from living his life in us? And how can we make sure he does live His very life in you and me. Let's talk about the story of the golden calf today. 
If you would head back to Exodus, you know where it is. The story of the golden calf, it has some lessons for us as we are thinking about feeding on Jesus Christ, as we are thinking about asking him to live his life in us, as we are thinking about being different and being a new creation and avoiding something that will keep him from living his life in us. What is that thing? As we lead up to this story in Exodus 32, I guess I didn't tell you where it is. You've probably looked in the table of contents or index or somewhere and found it. But Exodus 32, we, we understand the Israelites had been spared from the death of the firstborn at the Passover. We understand they had left Egypt with a high hand, as we rehearsed last night. We understand the Eternal was leading them, leading the way through the wilderness. They went through the Red Sea, and what a miracle that was. We understand they reached Mount Sinai, where they were to meet God, and they heard His voice thundering down from the mountain. The Eternal spoke to them, the people, from the mountain. He ate with the 70 elders. They saw Him. They saw the God of Israel and ate with Him. And then Moses went up to the mountain to receive the law from God. And then what happened? What happened? Exodus 32 and verse 1. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that we shall go before, that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Make us gods. Verse 2, And Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings, which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold from their hand. He fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. Then they said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So when Aaron saw it, he made an altar before it, And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast of the Lord, to the Lord. Then they rose early on the next day, offered burnt offerings, brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. This was not a volleyball tournament. That's not the kind of playing they were doing. They engaged in the same fertility cults that were going on in those nations around them. Immorality. This is what the Scripture records. You know, there's so much in this. There's so much in the the verses we just read. But to sum it up, how do you sum all of this short passage up? They had a moral collapse, didn't they? They had an absolute meltdown. In less than a month and a half, we know that Moses was gone 40 days. And if you 
look at the story, then we add a few days for what happened between the giving of the Ten Commandments and him leaving. In less than a month and a half, they had gone from agreeing to a covenant with God to dancing around a golden calf. Now, the Eternal was upset. And that whole nation came within a hair's breadth of being annihilated. Had it not been for Moses pleading with God to spare them, spare their lives. What was the conclusion of the episode? The Eternal was was going to go in their midst. He was going to be with them. He was going to guide them. And the conclusion was, he said, no longer, no longer will I go in their midst. Exodus 33 and verse 1, Then the Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your descendants, I will give it. And I will send my angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite and the Amorite and the Hittite and the Perizzite, the Hivite and the Jebusite, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Tragic. Tragic. The whole premise of leading them out of Egypt was so they could be his people and he could be their God and he would dwell with them. And he desired to dwell with them, but instead they brought in a false, molten, created God in their midst. This was the word talking to them. The one who became Christ. This was the rock This is the same being who is seeking to live in us and who lives in us. Are we doing things, brethren, that will cause him to say, I cannot live in your midst? What are some lessons for us? What are some lessons from the golden calf? If you'd like a title, that's my title. The Lessons from the Golden Calf. Number one. Idolatry begins in the heart. Idolatry begins in the heart. You know, we can dismiss this whole story as as meaning nothing to us because it was this big, ugly, molten calf. And how would we possibly be tempted to bow down to something like that? It's very foreign. It's not a part of our experience at all, our background. So we can dismiss it. But think about it. Where did this golden calf come from? Did they carry it with them from Egypt? Was someone hiding it in their luggage? Had they built something and disassembled it and put it in the baggage and carried it and then they put it all together? Of course not. Now, yes, they had seen the cow worshipped in Egypt, but they didn't have one with them. So where did it come from? Somebody had a thought, didn't they? It came into someone's mind. One person. Mind. We should build a calf. It started with a thought. So, 
we say idolatry starts in the mind. Yes, I understand. They didn't dream up the plans all by themselves. They had the background in Egypt. But it had to start with a thought from someone. And that's why it's important for us to consider as well. Can we not set up idols in our mind, whatever we put before God, and that becomes an idol? Brethren, what are your idols? We are coming out of Egypt. We are coming out of the world. Do we have idols in our heart? Or maybe a better way to say it, because, you know, we don't, I don't have any idols, you know. I'm not bowing down to things, you might say. Maybe a better way of saying it is, what is the center of your life? What's the core? What does everything else revolve around? I think most of us would say that God and his laws are at the center of our life. But you know, our life is not static. Sometimes our focus is very defined. Sometimes our focus is is very good. It's on God. And then sometimes we, we drift a little bit. We get distracted a little bit. We become complacent. And it's a never-ending struggle to keep God at the center, in focus, isn't it? And these days represent, coming out of Egypt, represent taking on the righteousness of God, represent digging in deeper, going on to perfection, rooting out sin in our lives. If anything takes the place of Him in our hearts, it's idolatry. Go over to Ezekiel chapter 14 and verse 1. Ezekiel chapter 14 and verse 1. There's an interesting passage here. Many, many hundreds of years after the events that we just read about, Ezekiel was given some interesting things from God. There had already been one wave of captivity on Judah for their disobedience against God. And another was coming. And the Lord spoke to Ezekiel this way. Verse 1 of Ezekiel 14. Now some of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts and put before them that which causes them to stumble into iniquity. Verse 4, therefore speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Every one of the house of Israel who sets up idols in his heart and puts before him what causes him to stumble into iniquity and then comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him who comes according to the multitude of his idols. Verse 5, that I may seize the house of Israel by their heart because they all are estranged from me by their idols. What does God want from us? You know, the picture I derive from that is sort of God grabbing someone by the collar and saying, Wake up! Grabbing them by the heart, seizing them by the heart, saying, I want to live here, but there's something else in place. Verse 6, Therefore says, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Repent and turn away from your idols and turn your faces away from all your abominations. 
So idolatry begins in the heart. So we don't get an easy pass just because we don't have big, molten, leering, golden idols around. Idolatry is a part of the heart. Number two, idolatry spreads. Idolatry spreads. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 9. Galatians chapter 5. And verse 9 says, A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Verse 7, backing up a little bit. You ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in you in the Lord that you will have no other mind. Why are we to eat unleavened bread? Because leaven is a type of sin. Leaven, whether it's yeast or baking soda or baking powder, it will affect the whole lump, won't it? Just like sin spreads, idolatry spread in that case. You know, the spread of leaven or sin can be in a group of people, as in this story, or it can be in our character in our heart, in our mind. If we allow a little sin, a little idolatry in our heart, it will affect our whole life and eventually it will touch everything. Everything. The story of the golden calf teaches us that. Number three, another lesson of the golden calf. Idolatry can slip in gradually. Gradually. Similar to the other two points, but there's a subtle but important difference. And that is that idolatry can sneak up on us subtly, deceptively. You know, put yourself in the shoes of the Israelites. They had received the Ten Commandments. Then Moses went up on the mountain. At that point, certainly everyone was excited. Keep looking and you keep looking. And finally, there's one piece that fits just right. I thought, what a great way to understand that God's purpose for us, also for understanding God in us. That there's a place in us that is only, only fits God, nothing else. And the command against idolatry is essentially saying, don't put other things in that spot. They don't fit where God belongs. Why is it so important to talk about this during the days of unleavened bread? Because we are eating unleavened bread, aren't we? The unleavened bread represents Christ. Leavening represents sin. But unleavened bread has no leaven. It has the thing, the missing that represents sin. Christ had no sin. We are eating this bread every day over the next seven days. And that bread goes down into our inward parts, doesn't it? It goes into our inside, in the very center of our our flesh, and then our body absorbs it, it takes out the nutrients, and we're fed by it. And every time we eat some bread, we are to be thinking about Christ going into our inward parts, 
spiritually, and so he can fill that spot in our innermost being, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, the spot that only God can fill. And yet we try to fill that spot with all sorts of things, don't we? And we get frustrated because nothing else really fits. That's the lesson. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 6. Let's turn over there quickly. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 6. This was written during the, the time of the Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover. And Paul wrote, Your glory and is not good. Verse 6, Do you not know that, again, a little leaven leavens the whole lump? This principle of sin, and in our case we're talking about today, idolatry spreading in our character. Therefore purge out or clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. A new way, new thoughts, new mind. So how do we do that? In the remaining time, let's talk about, on a more practical level, some of the things that we humanly can turn into idols of the heart. Number one, number one, possessions. Possessions. We can idolize possessions, can't we? This is not hard to figure out. Let's turn over to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. What are some things? What are some things that can turn into idols for us, that can sneak up on us, that start with a thought, that spread if we don't eradicate them? Money, possessions, Galatia, uh, sorry, Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5. It says, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Covetousness is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. Covetousness is setting up an idol in our heart. <clears throat> in our heart, in this case, money or possessions or things. You know, we're living in such a materialistic age. Let's not be fooled that we can't be affected by the idolatry of possessions. Over in Luke chapter 12, We might say, well, you know, I, I have things, but I'm not overly focused on them. I'm not coveting. But brethren, it's tricky. Idolatry sneaks up on you. And something that may not be intrinsically wrong can become wrong. Very easily. Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Then one from the crowd said to Christ, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And he said, verse 15, sort of a surprising answer. Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things that he possesses. Now think 
about this for a moment. It appears that this fellow was being cheated out of his inheritance. Was it wrong for him to, let's say, his, his brother was, had taken the whole inheritance? Was it wrong for him to say, look, you, you need to divide it up with me. You're not being fair. Of course that wasn't wrong. So the only conclusion is that Christ must have perceived something in his attitude here. That this had become an all-consuming obsession to get his rightful money back. And Christ put his finger right on the real issue and said, that's not the totality of your life. And then he said, verse 16, the ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully and he thought within himself saying, what shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I'll do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater and there I will store all my crops and my goods and I'll say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? Verse 21, so is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Was Christ saying it's wrong to be blessed and have your barns full? Was he saying it's wrong to build a bigger barn? To rent another storage facility, we might say, you know? No. Was he saying it's wrong to retire? Is it a sin to retire? No. But what he was saying is that somewhere along the line, in this story, somewhere along the line, this individual had, had, had moved away from, thank you, God, for my possessions. Thank you for what I have. I'm, they all come from you, and I'm using them to serve my family, to serve others, to serve you. Somewhere along the line, that changed to the possessions being the center of his life. And Christ said, what if I take your life now and now you don't have your possessions? Going on, verse 22, Then he said to his disciples, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, nor about the body, what you'll put on. Life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Verse 25, Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? If you then are not able to do the least, why are you anxious for the rest? So now he's talking about not having a superabundance, and that becomes a trap. Now he's talking about not having enough, and that also becomes idolatry. That becomes an obsession about what we don't have, even sometimes what we need. He says, if you are then not able to do this, why are you anxious? Verse 28, if then God so clothes the grass which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Whether we have a lot or we have a little, if it's the center, central thought of our mind, of our life, he said, 
it's going to become idolatry. Verse 29, do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind for all these things the nations of the world seek after. And your Father knows you need these things, but seek the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. Put God first. And he says, I'll take care of you. Fear not, little flock, it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell what you have, give alms. Provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old, a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches nor moth destroys. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So possessions can become a trap, whether we have a lot or a little. You know, we understand that times are getting harder and will get even harder. What will we do when there are food shortages? What will we do when there is rationing? What will we do when there are loss of jobs in a massive scale and lower wages? The stress of these things is only going to get more, bigger before the end. Christ said, put me at the center and I'll take care of these things. What's another <clears throat> another wrong center? Another wrong center, pleasure. Pleasure. Pleasure is not a bad word. We just read that it's God's good pleasure. It's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Something that pleases God gives Him pleasure. We have many things that give us Pleasure. Nothing wrong with having fun and unwinding and having hobbies and doing things that please us. The problem is when the pleasure becomes our center, isn't it? Back in the 1980s, a man named Stephen Covey wrote an excellent book called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And he talks about some of the false centers in our life, and one is, is pleasure. He said this, Innocent pleasures in moderation can provide relaxation for the body and mind and can foster family and other relationships. But pleasure per se offers no deep lasting satisfaction or sense of fulfillment. The pleasure-centered person, too soon bored with each succeeding level of fun, constantly cries out for more and more. So the next new pleasure has to be bigger and better, more exciting with a bigger high. A person in this state becomes almost entirely narcissistic, interpreting all of life in terms of the pleasure it provides to the self here and now. Too many vacations that last too long, too many movies, too much TV, too much video game playing, too much undisciplined leisure time in which a person continually takes the course of least resistance, gradually wastes a life. Again, nothing wrong with taking a vacation, right? Nothing wrong with having diversions, but you know as well as I do that in our culture today, the diversions, the hobbies, the entertainment, for many has become the central focus of life. And brethren, can that not happen to us? Do we not sometimes slip into things? Pleasure can also become addictive. You know, drinking alcohol in moderation is pleasurable, is appropriate, but we all know the disaster that addiction to alcohol is. 
engaging in sex in the right time and place within marriage is a blessing and a gift from God. But sexual addictions, where it becomes the primary driving force in a person's life and even leads to perversions of sex, destroy marriages and families. Even things like TV or Internet or checking emails or texting or instant messaging can be addictive. You know, more and more reports are coming out about how when some people are separated from their phones, they go through withdrawal symptoms. Try something. I, I challenge you. Go without your phone for a whole day and see how you feel. Those of you who have cell phones, yeah, if you have a flip phone, it probably won't matter. But if you have a, a smartphone, now that's hard. If you feel lost, if you feel missing something, if you start breaking out in chills and cold sweat, maybe you're hooked on it too much. I'm not suggesting you throw it in the garbage, but maybe shut it off from time to time. Maybe don't check it every time you think about it. Maybe don't answer every text right away. Maybe let your friends wait for an hour. They will survive. They'll freak out at first, but they will survive, and then they will get your text an hour later instead of one second later. The nature of addictions is that the person cannot control his or her will or mind. And, and brethren, we are here to learn to be in control, actually to give God control of our heart and mind, aren't we? Romans 6.16, I'll just quote it. It says, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey? whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? Are we slaves to these things? We have to examine ourselves. 2 Corinthians. Let's go ahead and turn there. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 3. Paul writes... For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 5. Casting down arguments in every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And bringing every thought, every thought... Every thought, did you hear that? Did you see that? Did you read that? Every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. You know, there's a saying in in drug abuse counseling. That is, drugs are people substitutes, but people are drug substitutes. In other words, in drugs or any addiction, they are a substitute for something going wrong 
in that person's relationships. And they're seeking for something. They're seeking for something to fill a spot that they can't fill. And the more they try, the worse it gets. The more miserable they get. We know that too because Proverbs says the eyes of man are never satisfied. You know, the more you try to feed an addiction, it never satisfies. In the context of the church, we can assert that God is the drug substitute. God is the, is the one who fills that spot inside the emptiness that we need to be filled. Nothing else can. He's the ultimate solution. Christ living in us dynamically. His life in us. So that he starts to direct and change our thoughts and our goals through the Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 6. <clears throat> He's recounting what happened with the Israelites in the wilderness. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 6, he says, These things became our examples. They were recorded for us thousands of years later. This was preserved for us to learn from, to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted, and do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Verse 12, therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall because idolatry is subtle. Again, it can be something that on the periphery is, is, is even legal, is okay, but when taking over our life, it will destroy us. Verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. So think about it. Is the pursuit of pleasure slowly, little by little, taking over our life? Our innocent pleasures gradually taking up more and more of our free time and more of our thoughts and more of our efforts and more of our money. Or are they even turning into an out-and-out addiction? God gives us so many blessings and things to do in life, but if they dominate, we're getting into the realm of idolatry. Number three, number three what's another thing that can become an idol. Our mate. Our mate. Could we possibly make our mate the center of our life and, and could it be wrong? Absolutely. Again, Stephen Covey saying, talking about this, he says this, marriage can be the most intimate, the most satisfying, the most enduring growth producing of human relationships. It might seem natural and proper to be centered on one's husband or wife. But experience and observation tell a different story. If our sense of emotional worth comes primarily from our marriage, we become vulnerable 
to the moods and feelings, the behavior and treatment of our spouse, or to any external event that may impinge on the relationship, a new child, in-laws, economic setbacks, social successes, and so forth. Love-hate overreactions, fight-or-flight tendencies, withdrawal, aggressiveness, bitterness, resentment, and cold competition are some of the usual results. If we make a person the center of our life... Now, this, this sounds like it's counterintuitive that we should be one together, right, with our spouse... But he's saying it, it does not work to put them in the place that only God fits. He says, inevitably, anytime we are too vulnerable, we feel the need to protect ourselves from further wounds. So we resort to sarcasm, cutting humor, criticism, anything that will keep from exposing the tenderness within. Each partner tends to wait on the initiative of the other for love, only to be disappointed but also confirmed as to the rightness of the accusations made. Even the closest, most intimate relationship that we know of does not work if we put the other person as the center of our life. Because only God fits there. You know, in our world today, there's this concept that you're looking for someone who will complete you. It won't happen. I know from experience. <clears throat> Let me explain. <clears throat> I do not complete my wife. You can check with her on that. I'm pretty sure she, that's correct. She can tell you. And she does not complete me. Yes, it's true that it's not good for man to be alone. That God said that. And that's why He created husbands and wives to, to come together and to learn from each other and to complement one another. But there is no human being who can give you, give me what you need what I need like God and not even a person. And in the world, when they talk about how someone completes another human being, that's a lie. And that leads to unfulfilled expectations. It leads to disappointment. It leads to conflict. It's a lie. And it can become... It's, it's essentially idolatry. You know, my, one of my instructors at college made a memorable statement. He said that only two whole, mature, complete people can make a marriage unit. And he described it this way. He said, you have one complete whole person, meaning they have a relationship with God, meaning they are settled and, and at peace in their life. One whole person. Another whole person. It's not addition. It's not one plus one. It's one times one. And that leads to one unit because they're both complete. If you have two halves and you multiply one half, times one-half, what do you get? You get one-quarter. 
Two people who are not happy with themselves, who are not happy with their life, who, who, who haven't found something to fill that center, which only God can. It's going to be very, very difficult for them to give to the other in the way they, they need to. So, what does the golden calf have to do with our life? Everything. Idolatry starts in the mind, it spreads, it can be anything, even our husband or wife. What about family? What about family? For some, their mate is not their center, but their family is. Stephen Covey going on, he says, This too may seem to be natural and proper as an area of focus and deep investment. It provides great opportunities for deep relationships, for loving, for sharing, for much that makes life worthwhile. But as a center, it ironically destroys the very elements necessary to family success. Family-centered parents do not have the emotional freedom, the power to raise their children with their ultimate welfare truly in mind. If they derive their own security from the family, their need to be popular with their children may override the importance of a long-term investment in their children's growth and development. They may be guided by the emotions of the moment, spontaneously reacting to the immediate concern rather than the long-term growth and development of the child. They may overreact and punish out of bad temper. They tend to love their children conditionally, making them emotionally dependent or counter-dependent and rebellious. In other words, if our children are the center of our universe, if they're the center, central point of our life, if we get our sense of self-worth from them... The end result, well, we will either pander to their every whim or we'll be constantly frustrated when they don't act how we want at the moment, regardless of what's needed long term. Putting our children at the center of our life can become idolatry. Now, that's counterintuitive, right? Because we love our children, we sacrifice for our children, we do everything that we can possibly for them. But they cannot take the place of God in our life. That's the point. We're living in a world where children rule over parents. That was prophesied. Why is that? Because it's upside down. Because too many parents in the world we're talking about have made their children an idol. What about work or even the church? You know, it goes without saying that our work can be our center. It becomes our identity. It creates our self-worth. Or our service in the church can be our center that can be something that we are really trying to put in place of God. For lack of time, we won't turn there, but in Luke chapter 10, we have the story of Mary and Martha. And you know, the first time I read that, I thought, wow, this is horrible. I feel sorry for Martha. Why did Jesus Christ correct Martha for working so hard? But I understand it more now. It's because he was trying to show that, look, Mary understood Here was the Son of God with them. He was in the room. He was in the house. 
She was sitting and talking to him. She was learning from him. She had an opportunity to converse with him. And not that she wouldn't have helped. I don't think that's the meaning of it at all. Not that she wasn't helping with chores other times. But she wanted to learn what he had to teach her at that moment. We all have functions to take care of. We all have things that we need to get done. We all have things that we're busy doing. But let's never confuse our personal relationship with God, with Christ living in us, with all of the the busy things that we take care of. You know, Mr. Meredith has, has talked about how, quoting Mr. Armstrong, about how we, we must be careful that we don't get so focused on the administrative, on the busy things, even in the church, that we forget to focus on our personal relationship with God. Another center that can become idolatry is friend or enemies. Friends or enemies. Stephen Covey says, Young people are particularly, though certainly not exclusively, susceptible to becoming friend-centered. Acceptance and belonging to a peer group can can become almost supremely important. The distorted and ever-changing social mirror becomes the source for their sense of well-being creating a high degree of dependence on the fluctuating moods, feelings, attitudes, and behavior of others. Friend-centeredness can also focus exclusively on one person taking on some of the dimensions of marriage. That is the emotional dependence, escalating need, and conflict spiral. And what about putting an enemy at the center of one's life? Most people would never think of that, and probably no one would ever do it consciously. Nevertheless, enemy centering is very common, particularly when there's frequent interaction between people who are in real conflict. You know, we talked about forgiving others a few days ago and over the last several weeks, didn't we? Leading up to the Passover. Why is it so important to forgive others? Because God knows if if we harbor hurts and offenses... Inside, what are we doing? That becomes the center of our life. And suddenly, that harboring of past offenses is idolatry. We won't let it go. We want that more than we want God living inside of us. Only Christ can fill us. Friends or even enemies can't. That's why we have to let it go. The last one he lists is self-centeredness. Perhaps the most common center today is the self. The most obvious form is selfishness, which violates the values of most people. But if we look closely at many of the popular approaches to growth and self-fulfillment, we often find self-centering at their core. There is little potential for a real sense of well-being in the limited center of the self. Like the Dead Sea in Palestine, it accepts but never gives. It becomes stagnant. Let's turn over to Luke chapter 14 and verse 25. We don't have to have a golden calf to be falling into idolatry. 
There are idols of the heart. And even sometimes normally good things that in the right context and on the periphery, when they revolve around God, they're good. But when they take the center piece in our life, they turn into something destructive. Luke chapter 14, notice what Christ said here, verse 25. Verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also he cannot be my disciple. Was he talking about hating family? Or was he talking about there has to be a place where God alone resides? And everything revolves around him and we, we don't confuse those, those things. Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. He says, even our own lives cannot be the center. And he says it because he knows how we tick. He knows how we work. He created us. He knows that we will be frustrated to no end if we are constantly looking for something to fill us that is not God. But when we do ask God to live in us, when we ask Christ to live his life in us and we go forward and we grow in that and every year that goes by after we are baptized, after we repent and we receive God's spirit and we grow, as we do that, we feel better, don't we? We feel happier. Our relationships work better. Things are in the right perspective Everything else works better when we put God first. We're not striving after wind, and we're not grasping after things that, that don't work. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1. These days are so profound and so powerful because of what God is teaching us and the opportunities we have to actually have God live in us, Christ live in us through His Spirit. But we have to seek it, don't we? We have to go after it. We have to reserve that spot in our center for Him and Him alone. Verse 1, Colossians 3, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. The ultimate freedom. The ultimate freedom to live in spirit as a spirit forever, is there. If we are willing to reserve that spot in our life, the center of our life, for God and God alone. Let's go back to Exodus chapter 33. Because there's an interesting ending to this story. Very tragic in so many ways. 3,000 men were slain because of this sin. Others died from the plague. Aaron, of course, got a huge tongue lashing from his brother. 
and had committed a horrible sin in allowing this to happen. And then God said that he would not go up with the people. But notice what Moses said in reply. Exodus 33 and verse 12. Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know when you, whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found grace in my sight. Now therefore I pray. Verse 13. If I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way, that I may know you, and that I may find grace in your sight. And consider that this nation is your people. He was saying, God, don't leave us. Please, don't forsake us. We can't do it without you. And what was God's reply? What was the Word's reply? What was the one who lives in us? What was his reply? Verse 14, he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Moses said to him, verse 15, If your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. For how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except you go with us? So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. We're going to be orphaned. We're going to be left alone. If you leave us now, Moses recognized the desperate situation that they were in. And God said, I will also do this thing that you have spoken. For you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. And notice verse 18. Now, an incredibly remarkable thing happens. And he said, Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, verse 19, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, here is a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock. Verse 22, so it shall be while my glory passes by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And what followed was... This incredible, unique time in all of human history when man, when a man saw the glory of God. From the back, not the front, or else he would have died. But God allowed Moses to see him in his glory. From this sin, from this separation, Moses took it as, please don't leave us, and furthermore, show me more that you are with us. And God granted him that wish. Brethren, that's the same being that we serve. We all fall from time to time. We all make mistakes. We all make idols out of things that ought not be idols. We all stumble. But what do we do when we stumble? Do we give up? Do we throw up our hands? 
We ask God, we cry out to God, we seek God, we ask Him, show me even more how you are there and you are not going to forsake or depart from me. And you're not only with me standing by my side, but you're in me. Please show me, please help me to see your hand even more. And you know, as we do that, that's exactly what God wants. And that's exactly what he'll do. We are eating unleavened bread for seven days. That symbolizes Christ in us. But it's not a ritual. It's not just something we go through. He made us to have a gnawing hunger. Something that can only be filled by him. And as we eat this unleavened bread, let's make a concentrated effort to ask God and Jesus Christ to live in us ever more fully for us to see Him ever more clearly and more directly. We need to seek these things. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20 says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Brethren, idolatry is not just a leering, big, golden, ugly idol. Idolatry is something we must struggle with every day. And these seven days can help us gain a little bit more deeply appreciation for what Christ is willing to do in our lives. There's only one thing that will fill that empty spot at the center of our life. And that is God and His Son. And that's the lesson of the golden calf.